Okay, well, we are looking at a series over the summer based in Matthew chapter 13. And I have two encouragements for you. One, read and read again Matthew 13. Read it over. Here, here's a challenge for you. Memorize parts of it. Find your favorite parable of the kingdom and memorize it. You don't get gold stars or special points, but you'll have your reward in heaven or something like that. But, but uh, spend some time in Matthew chapter 13. The second encouragement is, if you're able, come out on Thursday nights at 7 p.m. because we're looking at another aspect of the kingdom of God. And that is found in Matthew chapter 5, and that's the Beatitudes. And that's open to anyone to come from 7 till about 8.15. And uh, we gather right here at the church, and we discuss things together, and then we pray together. So that's open. So there's two encouragements as we go through this series called Not of This World. And as we try and get a grasp of what it means to inhabit the kingdom of God, what does it mean to be kingdom of God people? in this place and at this time. In Matthew chapter 4, it says that Jesus begins to preach, and his sermon is like the shortest of all time, right? His sermon is simply this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's his whole sermon. That's all we get of it, at least. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think of all the many things that Jesus could have preached for his first sermon. I think he knew the scriptures fairly well, and he had lots to draw from, and yet this is his focus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a few months ago, we talked about the word repent, and if you weren't here for that, it's on YouTube. You can go back and, uh, and discover it afresh, all over again. Uh, but the word repent is very interesting, both in Greek and in Hebrew. In Greek, it has this sense of change your mind. Have a change in your thinking. That's where it starts. Yes, it involves behavior and involves other things later, but it starts with have a change in your thinking. So think about that as Jesus is talking to the people. Repent, change your thinking, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In the Hebrew sense, the word repent has a, even a more a warm kind of idea. I think in evangelical circles, repent has been used as a, as a club sometimes over people. But in the Hebrew sense, repent is return. Come home. Come home. Change your thinking. For the kingdom of heaven is right here. That's exciting to me. What a wonderful, loving way to invite people to return to God. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, the original listener, listeners, the original people who would have heard Jesus, they had all sorts of ideas as soon as you mentioned the word kingdom. They were praying and longing for the kingdom of Israel to be restored to its former glory. They had, you know, years ago, hundreds of years ago, been returned to the land. They had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. They had rebuilt a temple, even though it, you know, was not what they had hoped for. Uh, but they didn't have a king. But now Jesus is on the scene saying certain words that are triggering thoughts in people's minds and hearts. And they're wondering, is this the king? Is this the missing piece? Is now the kingdom of Israel going to be restored? But Jesus says, I need you to have a change in your thinking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is already here. And I think we need to have a change in our thinking about the kingdom of heaven too. When I mention the word heaven, I'm curious to know what comes to mind 
When I mention it, I'll be completely honest, I think of something hopefully far off in the future, <laughs> right? And I'm not quite ready to go there yet. But when I think about heaven, sometimes I think about harps and clouds and all the wrong things that we've been fed by our culture about what heaven is about. And honestly, it sounds terribly boring. I'm not very excited to go. But Jesus is saying, have a change in your thinking about what that means. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's already here. What does he mean? What is he saying? How do we enter into this? How do we live out the kingdom of heaven even now? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear as he goes on and eventually stands uh, before the authorities. He makes it very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of this world. Yes, we're borrowing the same language, but the kingdom of heaven has different values, has a different point of origin, has a different way of managing power. It has a different duration. It has a different focus. And unless we're willing to repent and shift our thinking, we're going to miss it. We're going to live here, and even if we're in the church every Sunday, we're going to miss the values and the joy and the excitement of participating in the kingdom of heaven. So this caused some confusion for the disciples then. That was obvious. And I think it still causes some confusion for us today. So what is it like then to inhabit the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's why we turn to Matthew chapter 13. Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 13 tells a number of parables. Uh, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. And he spells it out for us. But here's the interesting thing. I would have much preferred if he had just told it in plain language. Like, just tell us. Why do you tell us? It feels like a riddle sometimes, the parables that Jesus tells. And we soon learn that these parables, they're not just good sermon illustrations. They're not just earthly stories with a heavenly meaning. They're not just clever, you know, object lessons that Jesus picks up. In fact, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable. And at the end of telling this parable, the leaders, the Pharisees and the chief priests, they wanted to arrest Jesus because of the parable that he told. That gives us a clue into what Jesus is doing with these parables. Eugene Peterson says that parables of Jesus are telling it slant. So imagine you're wearing old school armor that's different layers of metal upon one another. And it's really designed to take a direct hit, a direct blow. It can take. But if something comes in on an angle and gets in between the layers of the armor, then it makes a direct contact. And Eugene Peterson says, parables in the mouth of Jesus are telling it slant. It's maybe another analogy, the left hook. You don't see it coming. And suddenly, like in Matthew 21, the Pharisees go, hey, wait a minute. He's talking about us. And that's what parables are meant to do. You think you're hearing a nice story about a seed. And then you suddenly realize, whoa, Jesus is saying something that's far more interesting and maybe a little bit disturbing to my life. It also is not just a normal teaching method. Sometimes I hear this, that Jesus, it's just a normal teaching method of the people of his day. He takes up parables. But in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 13, the disciples come to him and they say the same thing that I would say. Master, why are you teaching in parables? Just tell us plainly. Why are you using these parables? 
And Jesus gives an incredibly strange response. Do you know what he says? If you've read through the chapter and hopefully over the next number of weeks, you'll read it right again and again. But he basically says this, I'm telling it that way to confuse people. Well, it's working, right? He says, I'm telling it that way because the people who don't have ears to hear that aren't really paying attention, they're going to miss it. But to you, to my disciples, I'm going to reveal the secrets of the kingdom. And we see that, and we'll see that again in Matthew chapter 13 as we read through. Jesus speaks to the crowds, and then he pulls the disciples aside, and he gives them the code to unlock the parable. So we looked last week at the parable of the sower and the seed, and Jesus tells the parable, and then he pulls his disciples aside, and he says, okay, now the field is the world, right? And the seed that fell here is this, and he gives them the code. When I was about uh, 10 years old, my oldest brother, who's about 16 years older than me, he was in Germany. He was actually in East Berlin. Now, some of you, that will mean something to you, because that was a time when the wall was still up. There's a thing called the Iron Curtain, and you were not allowed to distribute Bibles in East Berlin or facilitate Bible studies or churches, those kind of things. Well, my brother and his team, they were smuggling Bibles into East Berlin. And every once in a while, we'd get a letter from my brother, Bob. And the letter would read something like this. I don't remember exactly. Mom, Mom still has some of them. But the letter would read something like this. Went to Barbara's house had a potluck, the steak and potatoes were awesome. And it's like, what is that? Well, Bob, before he left, had given us a code book. And because some of the letters leaving East Berlin would have been read by the authorities. And if the authority read that, they'd go, well, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but pass it on, because they didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see what was happening. But we knew because we had the code book and we understood that the uh, potluck dinner was actually a Bible study. That was code for Bible study and steak and potatoes was some good teaching. I don't know if that was exactly it, but that's what I made up in my mind this morning. Um, but it was a code book. I was 10. I was just excited. Uh, but it was a code book and it kind of gave us the inside track. Well, Jesus does something similar with his disciples. He speaks one thing to the crowds and then he takes his disciples aside and he gives them some code words. And we need to pay attention to those carefully in order to understand the parables of the kingdom that we find in Matthew chapter 13. In fact, I would go so far as to say that the parables of Jesus are political speech. And we find that as Jesus goes along. More and more, he disrupts the powers that be. He disrupts the politics of the people and the region. And the uh, parables are a form of political speech. It's a way of critiquing the powers without saying it in so many words. And in fact, I don't want to get too far off track here, but if you turn to the book of Revelation, which a lot of people love this book for some reason, but the book of Revelation, if you turn to it, instead of focusing on trying to figure out the prophecies, try and understand the political landscape of the book of, and the letter of Revelation and look for the political speech because it's doing the same thing. It's using metaphor and images and language that those who are not paying attention won't hear it or see it. But those who are will be encouraged by it or challenged by it. And so that's what's happening uh, in these letters. 
So what do the parables tell us about the kingdom? Well, last week we looked about, look at the, uh, the parable of the sower and the, and the field. Very familiar parable to many people. Encourage you to read it again. But here's the bottom line for me. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is a rejected kingdom. It's largely rejected. That the message of the kingdom and the king himself is rejected by the majority of the people. You think about it, only 25% of the soil produced something that lasted. 75% of the soil that the seed fell on uh, didn't produce any good, good crops. And th- so there's this sense, and Jesus is saying, I and my message will be rejected by the majority of the people. And it's a warning to those of us who might take up the gospel of the kingdom that we too will face rejection. And that rejection comes for lots of reasons. Sometimes it's because of our hard hearts that the seed is rejected. Or sometimes it's just the cares of the world overwhelm us. Or sometimes it's because the seed's been snatched away by something evil. And so all these reasons. But we understand that the kingdom, as good news as it is, is more often than not rejected. Well, here we're going to read Matthew chapter 13 and verses 24 to 30. And I'd say in this parable, Jesus is saying something else specific about the kingdom. And it's this, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a mixed kingdom, a mixed kingdom. And that's going to be frustrating to us because we don't like that kind of ambiguity. We want to sort it out. We want to fix it. And so let's read this passage together. In Matthew chapter 13, I'm going to start reading at verse 24. Here is another story Jesus told. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night, as the workers slept, his enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat, then slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce grain, the weeds also grew. The farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds? They asked. No, he replied. You'll uproot the wheat if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds, tie them into bundles, and burn them. That's a little ominous. And put the wheat in the barn. The full interpretation of this is further down the passage. But that's as much as I'm going to read. You can read the rest at home. The kingdom of heaven is a mixed kingdom. A mixed kingdom. Well, what do we learn from this? This parable helps to set our expectations as we try and live out the kingdom of heaven within the world around us. First thing that Jesus teaches us in this is to be patient. God is working out his plan in his time. Did you get the sense of frustration from the workers? They're like, wow, you planted all that good seed. Now look at it. It's full of weeds. You know, we're so frustrated. Has anybody here been frustrated with the presence of evil in the world? Frustrated thinking, God, why don't you do something about it? Why is it still here? And if you're not going to do something about it, I'm going to do something about it. 
That's the problem. Sometimes the church decides that it's going to take up arms and fix the world to root out all the evil that we can find. And often we end up destroying things (laughs) with our good intentions, our good intentions to fix the world. And we mislabel evil because we're terrible sometimes at telling what is good and planted by God and what is actually evil. The wheat and the tares are two kinds of of, uh, plants that grow kind of naturally and they look very, very, very similar until the harvest time. And Jesus is saying, no, don't. (laughs) Don't take this into your own authority to try and root it out. I have a plan and the plan is going to work over time, but we need you to be patient. That's hard, isn't it? Be patient. The second thing I think we learn is this. Not only be patient, but be alert. Jesus says there is an enemy in the world. They come to him and say, who did this? Where did all this evil come from? It's the question people are asking today, right? Where did this evil come from? Where's God in all this? Did God start this evil? And the answer Jesus gives is an enemy did this. And that's very consistent all throughout the New Testament. In 1 Peter chapter 5, it says, stay alert, Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Apparently, he also sows seeds, counterfeit seeds, seeds of his own evil kingdom. And we have to be alert. We have to watch out that we don't fall into that trap. And I think the biggest thing we have to watch out for is that we don't become co-workers with the devil in planting the seeds of evil. How do we do that? Well, I think we do that in very subtle ways. When we gossip or slander, we're planting evil seeds, aren't we? When we operate out of greed or lust or envy, we're sowing seeds of evil. We're sowing counterfeit seeds. And so we have to be so careful. We have to be alert that we're not inadvertently being used as tools of the evil one. And so that's something that we learned from this passage. So be patient, be alert. But here's the third thing that's really important. Also be humble. Why? Because God alone is equipped to judge people. God alone is equipped. And thank God that we don't have that responsibility because we are terrible at it, generally speaking. Jesus did not trust that his workers would be able to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat. And at first glance, that's kind of humiliating because these are workers in the field. These are the ones that he's depending on. But he says, no, don't. Don't touch it because you'll mess it up because I don't trust that you'll be able to tell the difference between the weeds and the wheat and you're going to do a lot of damage. Well, this raises a question for us. Does this then mean that we are never to judge? There's a whole judgment passage, isn't it? You you get a sense of that as you read through it. I often hear that, you know, Jesus never judged anyone. That's not entirely true. And I think it's because Jesus was in the place where he could, because he knew the hearts of all people. And so sometimes he judged the Pharisees and those who were abusing their power. Uh, Sometimes he said to people, stop sinning, (laughs) stop going along that path, because he could, he knew the hearts of all people. 
But yes, there are actually times when we, you and I, are called to judge. But the problem we have is that we use the same word, and we use it over and over again, and we miss the nuances of the context. And so sometimes we are called to exercise judgment in, say, decision-making. But we need a different word, don't we? I would use the word discernment. We need to discern what is true and wise, and it's a kind of judgment. When we first moved to Calgary, coming up 10 years ago now, um, our girls, one of our girls, uh, instantly had a couple of friends. She didn't ask for them. They just kind of came along. And Christine and I knew that these were not the best friends for her. But what do you say as a parent? So we had already judged them, right? Right or wrong, we're like, ah, this is not going to go in the direction that we'd be happy with. But our daughter eventually came to the same conclusion, and she decided that she had to distance herself from those friends because they were not a good influence. That's a kind of judgment, but it's a judgment I would use the word discernment, discernment of what is true, right? There's another kind of judgment that I think we're meant to be involved in, and it's a judgment in terms of legal matters. We are called to set up uh, institutes of judgment in order to judge in legal matters. But I would use a different word there too. And the word is justice. Yes, we are to exercise the judgment that brings justice, especially to those who are oppressed, those who are vulnerable, those who have been victims. There is a kind of judgment that takes place, but we are to work for justice. So don't hear this parable and say, well, you know, I see the evil in the world, but Jesus is saying he'll take care of it in the end, and so don't do anything. I don't think that's what the parable is saying. There are times when we need to work for justice, especially for those who don't have a voice of their own. So there's a kind of judgment there. So what are we talking about? Well, I think Jesus is talking about a particular kind of judgment, and it's this. It's the judgment that we exercise on another person in determining their eternal destiny. I would say use the word condemnation. When we decide to exercise judgment and condemn another person, Jesus says, no. No, because you don't know. You can't tell the sons of the kingdom apart from the sons of the evil one. You're not that good. You don't have that authority. You don't have that insight. So stop it. Stop judging others in terms of what you think their eternal destiny is going to be. That's not up to you. And thank God it's not, right? But we do it a lot. I remember uh, when I was a youth pastor many moons ago, uh, we were working in um, the city of Surrey and the city of Richmond, and we, um, we ran a number of different drop-in centers for youth, especially some that were a little bit troubled. And I also worked with a, a school that was called the Learning Center. Uh, we used to call it the work and burn because they were supposed to work, but they did a lot more burning. Anyway, I won't get into that. Um, so the learning center was an interesting place. We ran a, a PE program for them because we had a gym in our church. Uh, but it was an interesting place. At, I've told this before, but at Halloween, when you do pumpkin carving, you don't give them knives because there's way too much stabby stabby would go on. So you give them markers, right? Even though they're like 17, 18, 19 year olds. So these kids have all been kicked out of schools or they've dropped out of school. They're either being forced back into school. Most of them don't want to be there. It was a tough crowd, to be honest. 
And there was times when I wondered uh, just exactly if I would come out alive after visiting the learning center. And sadly, a lot of those kids uh, got into trouble. Some of them um, died in, in uh, joy rides when they stole cars. A lot of the kids came in, they had cut their wrists and there were bandages. Every time I went in, some kid had bandages on their wrists. So this was a, this was a tough place. Well, we decided it would be a good idea. I'd think back on it and think, what on earth were we thinking? To have a mixed three-on-three basketball tournament. So we'd have the church kids... We'd have the old timers that I was sort of part of, and we'd have a whole new Canadian community that loved basketball. They were going to be part, and my learning center boys were going to be part of this, and I was nervous, to be honest. How is this going to go? We actually had a man, his name was Mr. Naismith. His grandfather was his grandfather was the guy that invented basketball. And he was a member of our church, and he had a great Christian testimony. He was going to share his testimony. We had the Grizzlies, if anybody remembers the Grizzlies in Vancouver at the time, and someone had, like, front row seats. And so we had, it was a great event. To my surprise, the Learning Center boys won. I don't know if they just intimidated everybody else. I don't know what they did, but they won. And they got all the prizes, including they were right behind the Grizzlies bench for the basketball game. And I didn't know whether to be proud or terrified. But they won. My Learning Center boys did. The old timers didn't stand a chance. Okay, fast forward uh, some time, months, maybe over a year. And I was down at Regent College on the UBC campus. And I went in for lunch to Subway, and suddenly behind the Subway counter, I saw Andy, one of the Learning Center boys. And he was like, oh, hey, Pastor Scott. And I'm like, Andy, what are you doing here? He goes, well, after that basketball tournament, I got so excited about it, I actually joined a league that was being run by, I don't know if it was Young Life or Youth for Christ, something like that in another church. And I became a Christian. I'm like, what, really? I mean, I'm trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to, you know, wipe the unbelief, the disbelief off my face. Really? You became a Christian? That's amazing. I, what are you doing now? He goes, well, I got things together. I finished high school, and I'm studying engineering at UBC. I'm like, I had honestly, I had written this guy off. I had prejudged Dandy based on his behavior, thinking, this guy is beyond the grace of God. Sure, he's going to win a basketball tournament, but he's going to go out and steal another car, or he's going to commit another crime. And I'd written him off. I'd seen something that I thought was a weed, and I didn't really want to facilitate his growth. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at here. We're terrible at knowing the eternal destiny of an individual human being. And we're terribly, we terribly underestimate God's grace in all of this. So the kingdom of heaven is a mixed kingdom. Good and evil exist together as we operate in the world. And sometimes that's frustrating and we want to set it right. And there are aspects that we need to be involved in of justice and discernment. But when it comes down to the eternal salvation of another human being, hands off. Don't touch it. We're not there. We're not there. Here's the reality. That coexisting of good and evil exists not just in the world, but I think it exists sometimes in our own hearts. And that's when we begin to realize that what happens to part of the field affects the whole, right? And our attempt to pass judgment and weed out anything that doesn't meet our requirements may result 
in ourselves and us being left out as well. The bottom line is eternal judgment is not my responsibility or yours. Thank God. The judge of all the earth will do what is right. And so here's my hope. And this is a little bit maybe reflection rather than right into the exegesis of the text. My hope is this, that when the field is collected, the righteous judgment of God will match the hope of God that I see evident throughout the entire biblical narrative. In fact, that there will be no bundles left to burn. The hope is that the qualifications of wheat have less to do with us and a lot more to do with the character of God and his mercy. And so the real question is, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can he also make wheat out of weeds? Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for the times when we have taken judgment into our own hands, into our own mouths, into our own minds, as we survey the people around us, maybe our neighbors or our family members, maybe the kids we've worked with, maybe our own children. Help us to just really appreciate your grace, to see how we are here because of your grace, and to leave room for you to work even in areas that seem impossible. Father, help us as we live in this mixed kingdom to be patient and to be kind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.